0: hello and welcome to small screen science the podcast
1: where we look at the science behind our favorite tv shows i'm karen I'm Emma and this episode we are calling Corset Ripping Science because we're chatting (laughs) about the science behind one of the most popular costume dramas ever, Bridgerton.
0: Yes, and I suppose we ought to start with a letter, haven't we? Go on uh, then, go on then. Dear listeners, the tonne are abuzz with the latest on did Indeed, small screen science has officially returned for the third season. The incomparable Lady Brisdian and Lady Collins <laughs> welcome you to the first show of the new season. Ah, oh, gentle listeners, your devoted hosts do hope you have a glass of ratafia for
1: this most delightful occasion. Oh, this is amazing.
0: <laughs> this is amazing. I love
1: how, how quickly you channel your Dame Julie Andrews here as Lady Whistledown. I haven't finished yet. I've still got to talk oh, a little bit left
0: of the letter. Are you ready? Just do continue yeah. just to turn the parchment oh, over.
1: Okay. Next, next page.
0: I am sure you noted dear Miss Featherington's choice of attire for this highly anticipated event. <laughs> oh, what a delectable frock! Almost the exact shade of double Gloucester your mother served at tea this afternoon. <laughs> I do so love cheese. <laughs>
1: Oh dearie me! Just to confirm, we are not frocked up for for this episode, even no, though it's a no. super exciting occasion. Well, <laughs> welcome back, Karen, and welcome back, listeners, to our third season. We're absolutely thrilled to be to be doing this again. Yeah, yeah, it's good fun. So as we as we whistle our way into the show, as always, don't forget to try and look out for the show references. We're going to try and get mm. in a few rather fantastic Bridgerton quotes through the episode. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll give you a full list at the end, but yeah, before definitely. we get there karen were you one of the 82 million households that watched bridgerton in the first 28 days of, of release i have to say i was i mean that is just so huge i can't comprehend that well it because it, personally i watched it over new years mm, so same here we yeah. in the uk here were locked down couldn't go anywhere mm. couldn't do anything and it was it was just it came for us at the perfect time mm. of just yeah. sitting down and binge watching something <laughs> which i thought was going to be a bit stuffy but turned out to be a, a very sexy period drama yeah, absolutely.
0: I mean, I'm a big fan of Jane Austen and, and it's my actually my favourite period in history, the Regency period. Is it? Um, yeah, so um, I was really looking forward to it. And it was just so, like you said, un- unstuffy.
1: It was really, really refreshing and so a big unstuffy. change. So Love yeah. the soundtrack. And it was just mm. beautiful as well. And yes. also, I mean, it was filmed in Bath and I yeah. live in Bath. So the added bonus was like watching, <laughs> watching all of the sets and like having a look and think, oh, that's the street down the road. And oh, I know the bakery round, there's the good coffee and like. <laughs> It was it was really funny to watch them. Like um, one of the scenes, the um, the viscount's mistress, whose name I've promptly forgotten, she they they have her opening the door of one of the the royal crescent houses, mm. and one of the fanciest houses in Bath. And I think mm, no, mm. she she probably wouldn't live there in real life. <laughs> but actually, it was it was absolutely stunning. And um, yeah. you know, we we remember roads being shut off and parts of the city being shut down for them to film. So it was really exciting to see it.
0: Um, and what I really liked about it was that it was refreshingly multicultural,
1: wasn't it? Which mm.
0: which I have to say Netflix is getting really good at doing at the moment with the, the dramas, which
1: is great. It is. But I think the, the thing that I liked on that as well is it was just it didn't explain it in any way. It just was multicultural. The cast is mm-hmm. really diverse and people were there because they were brilliant. There was, you know, like you're getting quite a lot of TV shows or you have historically. There always has to be some kind of explanation in the script as to why a certain person is there um and it's just absurd and I love the fact that they were just like this is the cast they are awesome no no blinking everyone was just yeah. wonderful and it was yeah it's brilliant I thought it, it was, was really really
0: good absolutely fantastic and and like you said choosing people because they're great actors and not worrying about anything else and I think it's been a big criticism <laughs> with costume drama and because they're all handsome oh goodness yes absolutely stunning yeah yeah mm-hmm. not only was the location stunning. The actors were stunning as well.
1: <laughs> the cast were lookers as well, weren't they? Yeah. Listen, we we cannot start talking about costume dramas without starting to look at the costumes and indeed the corsets. Yes, this is true. I think because that has to be the first thing.
0: Yeah, because they. I mean, the opening scene. It was you know at um, that first episode, Lady Featherington. know, yeah, they were pulling the the stays tight, and she had the classic line. I was able to squeeze my waist into the size of an orange and a half when I was Prudence's age. Your sister will do the same. Goodness me! Mm. No, and thank and you. That's nothing.
1: It's just it? mad, isn't it? Mm. That's and clearly an absolute lie. That, yes, that's, that's rubbish. <laughs> but it's but particularly I think because that first scene was someone being pulled into a corset. Mm. I that that set my expectation as oh here we go it's another period drama where women mm. are sucked in and told yeah. what to do. Um, and then straight away you realise it wasn't. It was actually something really exciting. And that's why it's garnered yes. so much love.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
1: And I mean, I mean, talking about corsets, mm. according to the Smithsonian, no mm. less, the actual use of corsets in costume dramas is a very good metaphor and a very good kind of storytelling tool mm. because it kind of points to the fact that back in this era, women had less control; they were quite restricted, um, and and they were kind of told how to be, what to do. Um, but actually, it's, it's it's a little bit of a popular myth because not you know the corsets themselves weren't always about, you know, not being able to breathe um, no. and they weren't always held as, as tightly as that, were they?
0: No, absolutely. And, it, and particularly in the Regency era where the Empire, you know, the Empire line was the fashion where the dress mm. just dropped from the bust, you know, the classic Jane Austen programmes mm. that you watch. Um, so in that case what would be the point of having a corset that tightened up your waist you wouldn't need one would you um, no exactly and in actual fact the the you know the corsetry of the time you know the undergarments of the time actually were designed to to shape the bust so to mm. lift the breasts up and make them almost into into two separate globes that was kind of the fashion of the time <laughs> <laughs> was these two bulbous melon globes over the top <laughs> um and actually you know the rest of the corset was there just to you know leave the waist and the hips in their natural shape so you wouldn't have all of that pulling um to you know to tighten the waist because there wouldn't be any need
1: no exactly I mean they had quite a few different underwear options back mm. then and yeah. some of them were you know a bit like what we imagine a corset today but often they also had quite softer versions which were just kind of quilted they were they were supportive but they weren't restrictive they certainly weren't trying to train your waist in the, in the way that we sort of understand today mm. um, and some of them did have things like boning or, or bits of wood in to yeah to basically flatten the stomach or give the appearance of a flat stomach um, but they still were quite gentle about hugging the curves and they were designed to be comfortable they were just kind of a comfortable structure underneath one's dress as opposed to a really restrictive uh must suck my stomach into the width of an orange (laughs) kind of situation yeah exactly
0: and and you know and when we think of corsets and tight lacing that wouldn't have been possible in that part of the regency era because in order for that really tight lacing to happen you Mm. needed metal eyelets Mm. and they weren't introduced actually into corsetry until 1828 and that was um you know a frenchman Um, actually introduced those and it was the introduction of those that enabled that tight lacing Um, Uh and that meant that it was actually later in Victorian and Edwardian times when you saw that more of that hourglass figure you know created from that tight lacing so yeah yeah.
1: And, and scientists as well have been quite interested in corsets so actually um, a famous medical journal The Lancet has published a couple of articles back in the Victorian era looking mm. at corsets some of them have got wonderful wonderful names so one of them for example in, in 1892 was called The Effects of Tight Lacing <laughs> and had a look at the medical repercussions of the corset mm. and one two years previous to that was called Death from Tight Lacing <laughs> and it has a awesome... great title <laughs> <laughs> it would be a good novel don't you think yeah I think that's Death the name of a good from Tight Lacing a, 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 a lost Agatha Christie <laughs> <laughs> um and, and it has this amazing quote and it and it says the veriest novice in anatomy understands how by this process almost every important organ is subjected to cramping pressure its functions interfered with and its relations to other structures so altered as to render it even if it were itself competent a positive source of danger to them that is amazing, isn't Nothing it? good there, is there? <laughs> no, that's
0: no. A, no, definitely not. Cramping pressure doesn't sound yeah. very comfortable to me. I don't a, think I'd go for that. A positive
1: source of danger. I never <laughs> yeah. want to wear any item of clothing described <laughs> as a positive source positive of danger. source
0: of danger. Mm. And
1: this was followed up in the
0: Edwardian era. kind of. So in 1908, for example, um, there was a, a Frenchman who actually carried out x-rays on women who were wearing corsets to see exactly what was actually happening in terms of the rib cage and everything and he wrote a paper on this with images of all these different um, x-rays in it and of course he called it le corset corset he did <laughs> I see what you did there.
1: <laughs> I've been waiting to use that at some point.
0: <laughs> Marvellous. Um, so despite all this, corsets were actually used more to support, you know, to support the outer garments more than anything else. Um, mm, they were like and a actually, structural thing. Exactly. It was kind of a kind of structural. And it was, um, you know, it was the fashion to have a slim waist. But the waist was quite often accentuated by by increasing the, the hips, you know, the, the, the hips by using the skirt or an, and the bottom by using a bustle. A big old bustle, yeah. yeah exactly just to make to change the shape and that accentuated the waist and made the waist look um, narrower than it actually was mm. and actually it's believed that you know when you see in museums and things you see these corsets tightly laced together mm. it's believed that women didn't necessarily tighten them that tight as tight as they could go mm. um, and they would have them slightly you know slightly open where you could see the lacing and the lacing wasn't a, bit a gap of the material. Back, yeah yeah um so so it wasn't you know as bad as you might necessarily think
1: Well, that's really interesting. So Mm -hmm. my thought here would be when we take kids to museums, particularly teenagers who are already vulnerable to all sorts of pressures about their bodies, do we have to have these corsets tied up to their maximum? Because... It's just perpetuating this never-ending cycle that we need to be crazy skinny to be attractive. Mm. Maybe maybe you and I should write to museums yeah, and tell same. them that they should be more historically accurate and have them not quite as skinny. Not quite, but, as, um, not quite as tied up, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, it's not just women that faced yeah. uh, some of these ideals. So we talked in a previous episode about Love Island, about when it comes to finding men attractive, often... Um, it's deemed that men in a slight triangle shape with slightly mm. bulkier shoulders and a slightly slimmer waist of a certain ratio uh, were more attractive. So actually, men of the era also would use padding and things in their clothing to try and make themselves fit that, um, that kind of narrative. So we, you, you saw a lot of shoulder padding back in mm. the day of men to, to bulk them out, give them the bigger shoulders and, and fit those kind of um, physiological cues of, of uh, prominence and health.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, some women did take tight lacing to the extreme. Um, there's, there's these x-rays, obviously, as evidence, but also there's, there are rib cages of women of the era that have been kept in museums. There's one example at the Royal College of Surgeons in Glasgow, where they've got an example of, of a deformed rib cage that's been Gosh. caused by this tight, la- tight lacing. Mm. Um, and so it did cause, you know, damage to the rib cage for those women that did actually do it over a period of time. Mm.
1: So so tight lacing also seemed to affect the lungs in particular so if mm. it was too tight you would prevent often the lower lobes from expanding when taking in a, a breath so they essentially couldn't take in a full breath um, and there's some speculation this actually might have been something that affected the body's ability to fight off tb as mm-hmm. tb does tend to infect the lower lobes of the lungs first but i mean as we mentioned earlier the tight lacing of, and the hourglass figure was something that was more characteristic of the victorian and the edwardian mm. era but bridgerton we're looking at is, is more regency. regency
0: yeah mm. yeah so so to continue to fact check the show and look mm. out you know to talk a little bit more about that Um, We're going to find out a little bit more about sex and relationships and even medicine in the Regency period. And in order to do this, we spoke to an excellent historian called Sarah Richardson, and she's the Professor of Modern British History at the University of Warwick.
1: So obviously we, we look at the science that can be woven into the show. And when we think of Bridgerton, let's be honest, most of the science that everyone thinks of is the sex, because... There's quite a lot of it, and the obvious route for us to go down is the kind of the finer details of how the babies are made, because this is looked at in quite. Um, quite a lot of detail for what was, you know, you'd expect from a period drama. So, this is the part where the Duke, in all of their kind of marathon lovemaking, um, knows enough about sex then to pull out so that he doesn't impregnate Daphne. But Daphne doesn't really realize to start with um, that that is in itself a form of contraception. So, I mean, Karen's a teacher, she's taught sex education before. So, we're not going to turn this <laughs> podcast into a sex education podcast. But this is where you come in really nicely because as a historian, Uh, We were we're desperate to ask you, how accurate is it that these kind of fundamental biology lessons maybe weren't taught to Daphne as a young girl of her standing at that time?
2: Yes, well, it would be really common for girls of Daphne's stature not to have any sex education at all, mostly because for the marriage market, it's really, really important that she's presented as a sort of virtuous, innocent virgin Um, and to have any worldly knowledge at all would put her reputation at risk, put it that way. So young girls of her, you know, sort of stature would have been protected from knowledge of sex as far as possible. So in those terms, it's quite believable that she wouldn't really have any sense of contraception or the sexual act itself. However, once she got married, the, the focus turns from being, you know, getting a marriage partner to producing a child and producing an heir, which is really important because of property. And so at that stage, often after the engagement or, or soon after marriage, uh, a mother or older sisters often would be sort of dispatched to to provide a sort of quick speed update on, on sex oh, wow. education. So that here, by the way, <laughs> so, so the actual innocence bit of it is accurate. Where I think I would take a bit of issue is that she would continue to be so innocent once she got married.
0: Because she does, she is aware that when she has a, because there's that ball situation, isn't there, where she has a period starts and she knows then she's not pregnant. So she obviously has some kind of understanding about the relationship between the menstrual cycle and and pregnancy. Yeah. So menstruation,
2: um, again, she probably wouldn't have had any pre-knowledge of menstruation until it happened. So you do read, you know, sort of accounts of girls or young teenagers, being totally distraught and thinking that they're you know they're hemorrhaging or something because they've got no idea what's happening so there would then have been an explanation so so again girls were sort of kept in the dark and this went on right through the 19th century so that aspect of it yes she would have understood but it's more things like contraception um the sexual act itself um anything to do with you know sex as pleasurable for example you know that that aspect would have absolutely been taboo
1: so we've been a little bit cliche here haven't we we've focused on the ladies so i think it's time that we actually had a look at the chaps of the 19th century shall we
0: yes and i think it's also time we took a look at the science and the medicine of the day as well
1: and uh, i mean the duke knew all of the i mean pardon the pun he knew all of the ins (laughs) and outs so would they have taught boys or would that again have been something that he'd have learned from his peers as he was growing up? Or So it's a total double standard, I'm
2: afraid.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, I thought that's so, what might be coming. Yeah, so
2: for men, it's important that they are sexually aware and that they, you know, and also that they experiment. And so for young men like him, he may have gone, for example, on the Grand Tour, which is this sort of, you know, coming of age tour of Europe, where he would have, not been encouraged but it wouldn't have been frowned upon for him to have a number of sexual liaisons there was a sort of sense as well in 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 terms of the science and the scientific knowledge at the time that men needed an outlet uh-huh.
0: it's bad to, bad to let it all build yeah, up inside exactly. and all that yeah and, Mm.
1: yeah we've all heard those rumors yeah Yeah. and and so there
2: there was a sort of quasi sort of scientific sort of encouragement almost for that and you know similarly in the same way that menstruation was seen was seen to have an impact on women in all sorts of things you know from their ability to learn to, to you know whether they could take physical activity during menstruation all of that sort of thing so
1: I mean we've sort of explored sex education Then back then but was there much of an understanding of kind of sexually transmitted diseases and things and if so how was it dealt with back then? So there was some understanding of sexually transmitted diseases mostly
2: in terms of sort of discharges and things you know that very obvious things that would be transmitted via sex but The treatments for those sort of things were pretty horrific. I mean, medicine is a pretty embryonic stage. In the late 18th, early 19th century, there's no professional associations of doctors and things. And so you get all sorts of practising people doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things which do not stand up to today's standards (laughs) of medicine. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Um, You know, the big uh, concern at this time was syphilis. um, And Mm. that was observed to to have an impact in sort of mental health and and decline as well as sort of physical symptoms and so those connections were made but the the rationale or the sort of um the cause and effect element of it was that it was obviously the woman who was transmitting everything you know she was the sort of unclean carrier it was nothing to do with the fact that men are having lots of
1: sexual liaisons with lots of people yeah nothing to do with the fact they're given a grand tour when they come of age
0: (laughs) So syphilis, syphilis, Mm. let's talk syphilis, shall we? Great. Sounds fun. Uh, Syphilis (laughs) is a highly contagious bacterial STI and it's caused by Treponema pallidum. Um, And it's actually an STI, which is nowadays we treat with antibiotics, obviously being a bacterial infection. Mm. Um, But interestingly, a recent paper, this was published in 2020, and it was looking at the incidence of syphilis across London, which they called the pox back in the day. Mm. And it suggests that 20% of 15 to 34 year olds in London were treated for syphilis in the 1770s. So that's the number that were treated for syphilis. 20 percent of course there would have been people who didn't go for treatment so incidences are much higher yeah Yeah. exactly but that's quite scary isn't it that in that young age group Um, Mm. and at the time obviously they didn't know it was a bacterial infection um it wasn't known until 1905 actually that's when they discovered it which is relatively recently but they did know that it was sexually transmitted and they did know that mothers could pass it on to their children during pregnancy and birth
1: Oh, right, okay so there was a lot of stigma around getting treatment as well mm. perhaps skewing those statistics but okay let's get medical then for a minute yeah. how does syphilis affect the body
0: well it, it can present in different
1: stages mm. so if we just look at the
0: primary secondary tertiary stages so the primary stage are these kind of ulcerations which will appear around the genitalia normally about two to six weeks after infection now that means you might not have anything appearing on your body for two Mm. to six weeks after you've been infected which means you can go on to infect other people without even knowing that you're infected
1: during that time we've all learned this year the the problems of being asymptomatic yes
0: absolutely yeah (laughs) And then the secondary uh, stage is a body rash. And this is the part that people really notice. And this can appear four to 10 weeks later. Um, and this can even have a rash on the palms and the soles of your feet as well. And as part of this, you can have headaches and you can have fever, sore throat, and even hair loss, which is mm. not not pleasant. And then the tertiary stage, and this can be three to 15 years later, um, which is a long time, you know, oh. so it's not treated. It, it has a huge impact on the body over a long period of time. Um, and this can affect the central nervous system, the cardiovascular system. And if it's left untreated, it, the mortality rate is 8 to 58%, Ooh, big which jump is there! not good. Mm. It's quite a spread, but it's not good.
1: No. Mm. Um, so I mean, let's have a look at how we treat it then. So mm. the main treatment for syphilis, as we've said nowadays, is antibiotics. Yeah. But back in the day, in Regency times... They went straight to mercury. They mm. loved a bit of mercury back then, which obviously we now know uh, not to use. Um, and it, you know, it was used. It did improve some of the symptoms of the secondary stage of, of syphilis, so those those lovely body rashes. Mm. But obviously, it also causes poisoning, hair loss, you know, discoloration of the gums. There's a whole host of things yeah. um, that, that mercury can cause. And there was a popular saying back in the day, which <laughs> I quite like, which was a night with Venus and a lifetime with Mercury. Um, which, which Very classical. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, how does mercury actually affect the body if you're exposed to it? So there are several types of mercury that you can be exposed to, and they differ ever so slightly as to what they actually do to you. So if we have a look at metal or elemental mercury, Mm. so this is what you kind of find in thermometers, and you often inhale as a a fume, this can cause neurological damage. Mm. So... What mercury does is it inhibits um, selenoenzymes. I think Mm -hmm. I've said that right. Yeah. And now, in the brain, where lots of oxygen is consumed, it's a really vulnerable area to oxidative damage. Mm -hmm. And selenoenzymes are really essential in repairing this damage. Oh. So if you've been exposed to high levels of or prolonged exposure to this type of mercury, Mm -hmm. it will stop this mechanism and it will stop the repairing process being happening. So a lot of the damage will stay uh, and you'll continue to experience damage and you you can eventually die from that kind of building up and causing a lot of neurological problems. Mm. And now if you're exposed to mercury salts, they can really damage your kidneys. And if you're exposed to in high levels of organic mercury, so which is, this is where you often hear of it in kind of seafood and shellfish. Oh, it can build yes, up in the yeah, food yeah. chain. This is the one that most mm. people kind of associate with mercury poisoning. And it's often where it's been put into water by chemical plants and it's, you know, then been absorbed by seafood or shellfish. Um, and this one acts like the first one where it can cause a lot of neurological damage. So it's, it's really quite nasty stuff. Mm. And it can cause a lot of problems with um, with pregnancy as well. So it can cause defects and miscarriages. So... To be honest, yeah, not great. Neither neither syphilis um, or mercury are a good outcome.
0: No. And, and actually, um, you know, Alice in Wonderland, the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland.
3: Mm.
0: Now, um, because so many men were treated with or people were treated with mercury for syphilis, uh, there it would appear in their urine. Obviously. Now, what oh. hatters used to do when they made, you know, the fancy top hats that you'd see, mm. um, what, the hat, what they used to do was use mercury in the treatment of that while they were making the hats. Oh. So not mercury, sorry, they'd use urine oh, right. um, and they'd use urine in the treatment of the material while they're making up the hats. And of course, this urine would have high levels of mercury in it. So it used to cause neurological damage in the people who made hats. So hatters quite mad often hatter. would be mad. And that's why you, it, so you say mad, mad as a hatter. And that's where the whole thing came from. Oh, that is fascinating. I love syphilis, that. Well, syphilis Well, I, don't,
1: I don't, don't love that, but I, I love now knowing the backstory <laughs> the for that. That's, that's
0: fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so mercury treatment overall isn't sounding much better than suffering from syphilis in the first place, is it? Back no. in the Regency times. Mm. So um, I think we best avoid syphilis altogether. Um, yes that I, would think we, be, I think we had best <laughs> yes and I think I think the best way to do that is to avoid sex altogether mm. or maybe use some kind of protection mm. and they were actually condoms back in the day Yes. They were called baudruches. I don't Ooh. know if I pronounced that right, but it sounds very posh, doesn't it? Baudruche. Mm. And these were handmade from animal gut, mm. not so nice, mm. uh, or linen soaked in a chemical solution. And and they were tied to the penis using string. <laughs> and they were reusable, so they were washed and and kept in a I choose and choose absolutely. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Absolutely That's horrible. A,
0: but these condoms were were mostly used in brothels um to prevent, you know, sexually transmitted diseases, mm. rather than thinking about pregnancy we and that kind of thing. Exactly. So when when you were going out visiting your abbess
1: or your doxy,
0: um, in Ooh, a brothel, are they,
1: are they harlot names? Are they?
0: They are, yes, ah. names. Abbas or doxy, mm. sort of words of the, words of the Regency period. Like of venus. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's when you might use your, you know, use your
1: condom at that time. Um, um, right, I think we should move on from sex, shall we? We've <laughs> I, think dwelled, I think you're right, We've yeah. dwelled on that murky <laughs> underworld for quite a long time. So, yeah, I mean, okay, we've mentioned mercury and its use in medicine mm-hmm. there, but there are a few other treacherous compounds that we used in kind of the day-to-day routines of women as well back then. Yeah. So, if we're having a little look here now at makeup, um, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a quote in the show that leads us very nicely onto what we're talking about. And it's that those blemishes <laughs> on her face are quite difficult to conceal. Perhaps some mm. arsenic and lead might help. A few warning, warning bells going off there. Yeah. Nobody's going to put arsenic lead. or lead on my face. Thank you very <laughs> much.
0: Well, actually, before the Regency period, so even back, you know, uh, Queen Elizabeth I, for example, she would spread lead compounds on her face to make it white. That's mm. where all the white, you know, the whiteness of the face. Because for women at the time, you know, all this through through this period in history, um, you needed to look white or very pale because that meant that you, didn't, you weren't out working in the fields. Mm. You know, you were, you were obviously um, rich enough to not have to go out and work. So during you know bef- just before the regency period you would smear your face with this, these white compounds which contained um lead carbonate and of course that was you know that would have affected that lead would get absorbed into the skin mm. but in regency times and you can see actually on bridgerton is the the complexion was a lot more natural mm. um so it'd still be pale but you would um you know you'd look more natural you might have rosy cheeks and red tinted lips
1: and then that would be it Mm. And, and homemade cosmetics were actually garnering quite a lot of popularity back then as well. With You could find recipes in old magazines and things, um, mm. although you could still buy finished cosmetics from, from chemists and things. But there was a something called Gowland's Lotion, which was very popular mm. at the time. And it was used to treat quite a lot of skin concerns, but it did contain mercuric chloride. And this is mm. very corrosive and very toxic and literally removed the top layer of your skin. Ooh. Yeah, not great. Oh, not a great idea.
0: Although people do have skin peels today don't they so hopefully not from mercuric chloride (laughs) exactly the skin peel of the regency period Mm. Um, uh, but foundation as well i mean foundation would have come as a white powder back in those days um, and it would have been applied to the face and the neck but sometimes it was applied to the rest of the body as well Um, and this was normally made from things like cornstarch or rice or something like that but it could still contain lead compounds Mm. but there was a product that was out during the regency times and it was called bloom of ninon Mm. sounds posh doesn't does it, it? It's it, it does, yeah. on. Uh, but that did contain lead carbonate and people used to use it to spread on their arms and you know to make themselves look paler
1: it and believe great. it or not actually some modern makeup still contains a little bit of lead um, mm. so the fda in the us has an import alert on traditional eyeliners so big brands that you might recognize like coal is mm. a very old school eyeliner which is very popular in many parts of the world but actually coal eyeliner does contain quite a large amount of lead um, although they do say that 99% of modern cosmetics are tested by the FDA and contain less than 10 parts per million of, of lead, which is what is the threshold for what's considered safe.
0: Yeah. So so why all this concern about lead? I mean, we know lead is poisonous, but why? Yeah, you know? what happens? Mm, so it's, it's toxic um, and it interferes with the action of a number of different enzymes. So very similar to... Uh, mercury but it mimics other metals which act as cofactors so a cofactor is something that helps an enzyme to function correctly Mm. so it'll mimic them and attach to part of the enzyme like a cofactor would but it wouldn't promote the activity of an enzyme in the same way and that means the enzyme's not functioning as well Mm. and the the brain is particularly sensitive to this Um, so you might end up with headaches and memory problems Um, and it can also lead to behavioral problems as well um, it affects the central nervous system. So it can cause things like insomnia and hallucinations as well and convulsions. Gosh. Abdominal pain, kidney failure. Uh, it's not nice. And it can no. be absorbed through, you know, you can inhale it, you can ingest it, but it can be absorbed through, you know, your skin, through um, the mucus, you know, membrane
1: in your nasal cavity and things like
0: that as well as ingesting it. So it's it's not great. No.
1: And actually environmental lead is still quite... a it's still quite a prominent mm. problem today so atmospheric lead pollution increased dramatically in the 1950s because we were all using leaded petrol mm. um, and although we don't use leaded petrol anymore there's still a background level of it in the environment yeah. and, it, and it said that actually everybody has some measurable blood like lead blood level within us yeah um, and it's believed that actually lead exposure still accounts for up to 0.2 percent of all deaths globally yeah, which is shocking,
0: really, isn't mm. it? But if you think about the fact that lead was used as water pipes, so there will still be water pipes around the place that are still made of lead. Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, as well. And it's just like, it's just in the environment and affecting us on mm. a daily basis. Mm. So... um Talking about beauty, though, there was a magazine back in 1825, and it was called "The Art of Beauty." That sounds nice, doesn't it? Art of Beauty, um, and there was a particular paragraph in it that stands out, and it could have been written by Lady Whistledown, actually. So, if I just, shall I read it in the Lady do, Whistledown voice?
1: Do, do you, Julie Andrews? Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: When a person is young and fresh and handsome, to paint would be perfectly ridiculous. It would be wantonly spoiling the fairest gifts of nature. But on the contrary, when an antiquated and venerable dowager covers her brown and shriveled skin with a thick layer of white paint, heightened with a tint of vermilion, we are sincerely thankful to her, for then we can look at her, at least without disgust.
1: Oh, this frustrates (laughs) me immensely. No wonder we all have such a problem growing old gracefully. (laughs) Horrible. So mean about our elders. (laughs) Yeah. Goodness me, Um, actual magazine from 1825. (laughs) It's bonkers, isn't it? Although I'm pretty sure (laughs) if you read some of the stuff in magazines these days, you might also find it quite shocking. Mm. Um, So she mentioned vermilion there. Vermilion Mm. is a red powder or pigment that is made from the minimal cinnabar um, and Mm. was often used to make the redness in kind of rouge that they put on uh, your cheeks uh, or, or like mm. a lip promenade or a lip salve um, and it was made by mixing this red powder with something like beeswax so that sounds very nice mm. but actually using vermilion is actually very historic it, it goes much beyond this because it was even used as as a form of paint in the middle ages yeah
0: so so back to that quote then from the magazine it did sound very much like lady whistledown something that she would say and you can see the writer i mean the writer of the book julie quinn but also the writers of the show Um, You can see they've really nailed it in terms of the the gossip mongers of the day Mm. and, you know, what would have actually appeared
1: in magazines and things like that. So, I mean, one of my favourite lines as well, um, (laughs) which made me chuckle, was It has been said that, of all bitches dead or alive, a scribbling woman is the most canine. And if that should be true, then this author would like to show you her teeth. My name is Lady Whistledown. You do not know me. And rest assured, you never shall. (laughs) <laughs> brilliant, oh brilliant! gosh it? i love it i love it it's biting absolutely yeah? wonderful writing
0: amazing and there was actually um an example of a real life version and she was called mrs crackenthorpe oh crackenthorpe and she had um, a gossip column and this this formed part of the female tattler magazine now if you think about it tattler as in tattletale ah. so you can imagine it was a bit of a gossip but gossip magazine yeah um but this but she only wrote in it between uh, 1709 and 1710 and that suggests she did a season maybe oh and then, she was on
1: the marriage market just for a year yeah
0: and then just you know after that maybe got married or whatever and then didn't write anymore wasn't, wasn't able to Which do her gossiping quite so much quite similar to the show actually uh, mm-hmm. um yeah, so she knew all of this town gossip and but she, again, she was an anonymous writer in the same way that uh, Lady Whistledown is. Mm.
1: Mm. So, I mean, satirical pamphlets and gossip sheets were really popular in the Regency period. Um, they haven't just been invented for this show and they would have written the names of people just using their initials rather than using mm. their full names. Um, but obviously people in society would have been able to guess from context. Yeah. Um, so actually Lady Whistledown has been particularly controversial in this one because she does use their full names. She names and shames, she does. Yes. Indeed. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Which is uh, not great. Um, But it has been said that um, a true royal doesn't engage with manners as pedestrian as gossip.
1: But you and I aren't (laughs) royals. So I guess it's time to talk about the psychology of gossip. We are very happy to be pedestrian. Uh, Yes. So (laughs) let's, let's start then with a definition of gossip.
3: Well, those of us that do research on gossip have a couple of boxes that we tick. First of all, you have to be talking about a person. Uh, secondly, you're talking about a person who isn't there, so I can't gossip to you about yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, third, you're usually talking about information that you can make some moral judgment about. You can approve or disapprove. You can make some inferences about the person's character based on the information. And finally, uh, by definition, gossip is entertaining and fun. You, we, can't, we can't resist <laughs> it. Nobody ever says... Oh, I've got to go and gossip with my friends now. You know, it's it's one of those things you just can't look away. So mm. uh, those are the things that I would think of as gossip.
0: And that was the voice of true gossip expert, Frank McAndrew. And he's a professor of psychology at Knox College in Illinois. And he's a expert in all things
1: gossip. He is indeed. And and much like when we started looking at reality TV and the science and psychology of the things that might be folded into these kind of shows last season, uh, mm-hmm. we again wanted to have a look at whether science could answer things like what role gossip has in our lives and whether there's a, a deeper point to it than simply it entertains us.
3: Now, it isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, most people define gossip as this nasty, backstabbing kind of talk but most of the time when we're gossiping about someone, it isn't vicious, it isn't negative. I admit that it can be, but, um, and people mm. also define gossip as something that other people do. Without, without
1: realizing that we all do it ourselves. <laughs> oh yes, yeah, no, if
3: you're talking about somebody, you're expressing concern or you're sharing important information. Oh, right, but, of course.
1: That's not, mean, that is exactly what I do. You're yes, right, Frank. of friend. course. You know, what, ab- ju-
3: what about Julie, bless her heart, you know? Oh, yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you mentioned that it's not always bad for us. In what ways can it actually be good for us?
3: Well, I think it's good for us in a variety of ways. Um, first of all, it, it's good for the group that we're part of. One of the things that makes people do what they're supposed to do is understanding that other people are paying attention to your reputation and uh, talking about you if you mess up. So if you're in a work group and you're tempted to slack off uh, and not do your share of the work, knowing that other people are gonna talk about that is something that keeps you in line. It forces you to be a good citizen. Uh, Also, gossip is a way of, uh, in a more selfish way, getting ahead. Uh, if you think about the world in which we evolved in, to be successful there, you had to know what everybody was up to. You had to know who was sleeping with whom, who had powerful allies, who had access to which resources. And people who didn't care about that stuff, people who were oblivious, they got left behind. We're the descendants of busybodies. Uh, We've inherited the genes of people who were really on top of what was going on socially because this is the thing that you can use uh, to successfully maintain relationships, attract mates, and so on.
1: And this is exactly what we're seeing in Bridgerton, isn't it? So mm, families yeah. are gossiping and they're spreading stories. And they're, they're gathering power in knowledge and they're, you know, they're trying to get ahead in the marriage market and, and are higher and up in the, in the social standing.
0: Yeah, and all of this creates the perfect environment for a gossip publication like Lady Whistledown's newsletter to thrive and become a
1: very powerful piece of paper, actually. Mm. And Frank actually had plenty to say about gossip in the modern day, too, which was really interesting.
3: Well, I I don't think that gossip has really changed. I think the history of gossip is the same as the present of gossip. Uh, People have always been interested in each other and they've always been interested in the same types of information about each other. That hasn't changed. I think the only thing that's really changed is uh, the tools that we have to spread it. I think a lot of the problems we have in the world now is the horrible mismatch between our caveman brains and (laughs) the technology that we have. It used to be, if we were going to spread gossip, I would have to tell you, and you would have to tell someone else, and it would kind of travel through the the grapevine. Uh, Now, you press a button and a thousand people have the information instantly, and they forwarded it to 10,000 other people. And so like that, uh, it's everywhere. And I don't think we're prepared for the blowback on that, the, the speed with which uh, new information comes our way. Mm.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think, and um, of course, there's no way of Fact checking as well. So if you if you are you know gossiping about somebody in that small group that doesn't go very far, you might find out quite quickly that it's not actually true, and you can change the story. But when you're putting out there into the ether, so many people have heard it before you can change the story, and and by that point, it's got its own, it's got its own rhythm, hasn't it? There's not a lot you can do about it once it's out.
3: that's right. There's it's too late to put the genie back in the bottle. in the old days, it might have passed through two or three people before it got to the person who's being gossiped about, who can say, hey, wait a minute, you know, this is wrong. By the time the person finds that out now, it's too late. You know, 10,000 people already know. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a mess. <laughs> the basics of it, uh, what I'm drawn to listen to, who I'm interested in, that really hasn't changed much. Uh, The only thing that I would say is different is the fascination we have with celebrities that we don't personally know. I think that's a new wrinkle in the world that we evolved in. There was no such thing as celebrity. And everybody that you knew, well, everybody that you knew anything about was somebody you personally knew. Mm. Uh, So I think celebrities trick our brains into thinking they're socially important because you know more about a lot of celebrities than you do about your next door neighbor. I'm guessing. Yeah, that's
0: true.
3: Yeah, yeah. That is- uh, so, you know, we're not prepared for a world where we know a lot about people that aren't actually in our lives. They do have a, a, a nice side effect, though, uh, in a world where we don't all know each other. Uh, we've never spoken before today, but we could go and have lunch together and talk about the royals or talk about some other politicians or movie stars. And they're like friends in law, you know. They're people that we <laughs> we all know, and it gives us sort of a basis for a relationship. On the other hand, uh, sometimes we're interested in what the celebrities are doing or what very successful people are doing, and the reason for that is if we can find out what these successful people do, maybe we can learn something about how we can maybe be more like them. So. If I find out how they dress, what they eat, how they manage relationships, maybe I too can be a celebrity and be successful. It's the same reason we are drawn to stories about people who survive terrible things, shark attacks Mm. and plane crashes, because by watching how people deal with these situations, we kind of mentally rehearse what we might do and how we might survive and how we might be successful. So I think the scandal sheet that you're talking about uh, plays into all of these things. They're people that we sort of know, and so we're interested in information about them and their moral character and what's going on in their lives. But we're also interested in um, how they got to be where they are and what I might do to get into the action on that.
0: So Frank has taken us back to the
1: Regency era quite nicely there, hasn't he? He has indeed. And I know you love the history of this Mm. particular era. So why was it actually called the Regency era?
0: Well, it goes back to the fact that, I mean, if you remember in the show, there was a scene where Queen Charlotte has a meal with her husband, George III, mm. and he gets quite aggressive during that, has to be restrained. Mm. He was actually declared in real life, declared unfit to rule in 1811. Oh, right. But he stayed on the throne for another 10 years, basically. And during that time, his son, the Prince Regent, was basically ruling. So it's called the Regency mm. because he was ruling. But actually, because of the style of the time and that kind of thing, it's actually extended to a slightly longer period than just his ruling. So it's often taken back to 1795, all the way through to when Queen Victoria got on the throne. Ah, okay.
1: Now, what was interesting is the royal couple, as mentioned just there, Queen Charlotte and King George III, were actually mm. both really interested in science. Yeah very exciting to you and I, it is, isn't it so george the third was actually the first king to ever study science as part of his own education he had his own astronomical observatory and there are examples of some of his scientific instruments that can still be seen today in the science museum which is wonderful it's amazing <laughs> and then lady after my own heart queen mm. charlotte was an amateur botanist who actually helped expand kew gardens and make that one of my favorite places in london make it the kew gardens that it that we know and love today
0: yeah, yeah, she was a real advocate for for botany and mm. and it was the age of enlightenment so it was trendy to be interested in science at the time mm. and they were kind of leading on that which is amazing. Um so it's believed it's believed that George the Third's mental instability was caused by a hereditary issue mm. called porphyria. And this affects the synthesis of heme so you can imagine you need heme for hemoglobin don't you? Mm. Um so that's Quite a serious problem if your heme isn't being generated properly. Yeah, so it was a
1: really important component of blood, isn't it? So, mm. porphyria can cause quite a variety of symptoms, including things like abdominal pain, you know, racing pulse, constipation, red or discoloured urine, uh, as well as things like mental disturbances. Like you can get hallucinations, experience mm. depression and paranoia. So, all round, really quite nasty. And
0: even though it kind of explains his physical suffering and his mental incapacity, it was very persistent and it went over a long period of time. It was very severe and it was very late onset and that's quite unusual. So they think there might be some kind of environmental impact you know, on his health. So it wasn't just the hereditary disease, mm. something in the environment was affecting him as well.
1: Well, oh, and not just the environment as well, because I mean, mm. one paper actually suggests that the treatment that he received from his doctor may well have also contributed to all of this. So Mm. going back to the science of the day some of his treatment included things like arsenic and antimony based powders um and you know analysis of the king's hair after his death showed that he had arsenic levels of 17 parts per million which is many many times higher than would normally be associated with arsenic poisoning so there was a Mm. lot going on in his system which surely must have contributed in some way to a lot of his symptoms and it's, it's also thought that arsenic can trigger porphyria as well so yeah you know one thing is for sure you might love the romance of that time
0: but Mm. i certainly
1: would not want to live in or more specifically get ill (laughs) in the regency period
0: yeah no not great Mm. (laughs) um well that's actually all we've got time for in this episode of small screen science but before we go lady brisian Shall we share a list of the Bridgerton show quotes that we've snuck into the episode?
1: (laughs) Certainly, Lady Collins, it would be my pleasure. (laughs) Um, Right, Bridgerton superfans, you may have spotted, oh, what a delectable frock, almost the exact shade of double Gloucester that your mother served (laughs) at tea this afternoon. I so love cheese. Right at the beginning. Uh, Mm -hmm. We had, I was able to squeeze my waist into the size of an orange and a half when I was Prudence's age. Your sister will do the same. We had, those blemishes on her face are quite difficult to conceal. Perhaps some arsenic and lead might help. And and we had, it has been said that, of all bitches, dead or alive, a scribbling woman is the most canine. If that should be true, then this author would like to show you her teeth. My name is Lady Whistledown. You do not know me, and rest assured, you never shall. (laughs) And then to round it off, (laughs) I quite enjoyed this one. A true royal doesn't engage in manners as pedestrian as gossip no
0: <laughs> brilliant um so don't forget to follow us on social media uh we're on twitter at small screen Sci, instagram at small screen Sci pod and facebook
1: small screen science yes and you can also support the show on patreon so for just a small donation a month we give you a lovely bonus monthly bundle of mm. extra content featuring outtakes and some of the extra bits from some of our fascinating guests uh, and all the fun things that we couldn't quite fit into the episodes themselves
0: Yeah, and if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform
1: so you don't miss any of the upcoming series. Yes, we've got some fun episodes coming your way. We have got some
0: great episodes, yeah.
1: And of course, if you haven't already, you can go back and listen to seasons one and two uh, and explore things like the science behind shows such as Line of Duty, Blue Planet, Stranger Things and Dracula.
0: Yes, indeed. So we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.